Let's open our Bibles now to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21, the plan originally was to, to keep trucking these next two weeks and, and finish the book of Romans, um, but I changed my mind as, as the week started, and I, and I really just sort of selfishly wanted to spend my weeks uh, dwelling on, on these events that took place um, during Holy Week, and so I uh, decided to, to change things up and, and go a different direction for the next couple weeks, and then, then we'll come back and spend two weeks finishing out the, or two or three weeks, finishing out the book of Romans um, after that. Let's stand together now as we hear the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, for this good and pure and perfect gift that you have given to us that reveals you, our God, that reveals to us our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that by your Spirit who inspired and breathed life into these words, you inspire our hearing, you transform our hearts. I pray, God, that you would accomplish your good purposes in us by your word this morning through your spirit. And I pray for myself as I proclaim your word that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, we have come into what is called Holy Week, and that is... This week that commemorates the final week of Jesus' earthly life, his earthly ministry. The, the, these events took place in Jerusalem where Jesus had come to suffer, where he had come to die for our sins. And, and all of Jesus' actions in Scripture are very deliberate. We saw that as we went through the Gospel of John at length a couple of years ago, that everything Jesus does, he does on purpose. And there's purpose behind it. And that's certainly true in the events of this final week. It, everything Jesus does is full of theological significance. That's true now of his triumphal entry, which we are looking at this morning, his entry into Jerusalem. On, on the surface, this is a story of Jewish 
excitement. As Jesus enters into Jerusalem for the Passover feast, the Jews are excited, many of them anyway, the Jewish pilgrims traveling into the city because they have heard of Jesus. They have heard of what he has done. In particular, they have heard that he raised Lazarus from the dead. And they are believing this may well be the Messiah entering into Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Everything is about to change. And so there's much celebration and excitement. That's why we call it the triumphal entry. But there's something much, much deeper going on here. Jesus knew the appointed time for his suffering, for his death, for ultimately his resurrection had come. And he wants to make it very clear in this moment who he is, and what it is he has come to do. And as, as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem here for the Passover feast, he is presenting himself as the true king of Israel. His arrival here is a, a formal presentation of himself as king. And he's drawing the people to see some things about him. He's drawing us to see some things about him as he enters Jerusalem in this way. First, he wants them, he wants us to see who he really is. That, that he is the king that the scriptures promised would come. But he doesn't want, want them, he doesn't want us just to see that and look, look at him and go, well, that's nice, that's good. It's a good thing that, that, that we have this king of the Jews. What a, what a wonderful thing. No, he wants to force a question. And the question is, what are you going to do with me? You have to deal with me. What are you going to do with me? Who do you say that I am? First of all, look at, as we look through this passage, Jesus, the true king, revealing himself. Look at verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them. Bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say to them, the Lord needs them, and it will send them at once. Here, here's Jesus giving a very kingly command. He, he is sending his disciples on an errand that only a king could send them on. I want you to go and find someone's property, a donkey and its colt, and I want you to commandeer them. I want you to take their property. And if they question you about it, you just say, the Lord needs them. Jesus is showing them in this, not just that he's the king and can make a pronouncement like that. Go take their property. And if they ask you about it, just say, the Lord needs it. That should be good enough for you. But Jesus is showing them that, that he knows all things. He knows where this donkey is. He knows there's a, a colt with the donkey. The mother and the colt are going to be tied up together. He knows that, that when they're questioned about taking someone's property, which is a big deal, that just saying... The Lord needs them is going to be a satisfactory answer. That they'll, they'll be glad to, to send them. They'll be glad to do that. He knows everything. He knows how the people are going to respond in the future. In this scene, the day is Sunday. Jesus and his disciples are making their way into Jerusalem. The Passover feast is at hand, and there are many, many people in the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem itself is quite populated, had a population of over 100,000 people. But during Passover week, Jews from all over are flooding in, descending on this city. 
gathering into the city for the celebration. There would have been upwards of a million people in Jerusalem when this is going on. Most of Israel is going to see the events of this week. They're going to hear about the events of this week. Word of this is going to travel to everyone, and many of them are right there in Jerusalem right now for this week. And so Jesus makes this triumphal entry into the city for some very specific purposes. There, there, there are many things he's doing. There's at least four things that he's doing by entering Jerusalem the way he does. And the first thing he does, by entering Jerusalem, Jerusalem like this, seated on a donkey to the praise and adoration of the people, Jesus is provoking the crowds, the crowds that have now gathered into Jerusalem, ca- causing an enthusiastic display of worship. And it's worth noting here for the many who's, who like to make the claim that Jesus never said he was God. People just came back later on and did that. Notice Jesus receiving their praises. He's not doing what the angels always did. He's not doing what the apostles did, saying, don't worship me. No, he's receiving their worship as the king, as God. And Jesus knows the crowd's response is going to provoke the religious Leaders. Now, throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus was often avoiding drawing much attention to himself. He'd, he'd heal somebody, and then what would he say to him? Well, don't tell anybody about this. Keep it to yourself. When the crowds would come, he'd often just quietly slip away and disappear from them. But now on Palm Sunday, he's doing the exact opposite. He is shining a spotlight on himself. He, is, he wants every eye on him. Secondly, Jesus, by entering Jerusalem this way, is not just provoking the crowds, he's provoking the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, who hated Jesus already by this point, who were terribly jealous of him, who thought his teaching was heretical, who thought his claims about himself were blasphemous. They were determined to stop him. They had already said it in their hearts to kill him. After the the raising of Lazarus was the last straw, And they knew we must kill this man. Now because his time has come, Jesus is forcing their hand. He is forcing them to respond to him. He's doing it on his terms. He's doing it on his timetable. He hasn't hasn't forced their hand like this at any point prior to this moment. But now's now's the time. Third, by entering Jerusalem this way, Jesus is fulfilling messianic prophecy. We will... Come back to this later. But again, Jesus isn't restraining the people's praises. As they, as they praise him, they sing messianic psalms to him, and Jesus just receives it and lets them do it. He knew that his time was at hand. He wanted everyone to know who he is, what he had came to do. But a fourth thing he's doing, even as he is presenting himself as the king, even as he is provoking the crowds and the religious leaders, even as he's receiving their praises as the Messiah, he is also shattering their expectations of who the Messiah is and what the Messiah should do. Stanley Howard Weiss in his commentary on Matthew said, Jesus is giving here a satire on triumphal entries. It's a very unexpected kind of triumphal entry. He says, uh, On the one hand, this looks like all other triumphal entries. 200 years earlier, 
Simon Maccabees had defeated a foreign army and kept Israel independent. He rode into Jerusalem with people shouting cheers, waving palm branches because he had delivered them. This triumphal entry parodies the entries of kings and armies. Victors in battles do not ride into their capital cities riding on donkeys, but on fearsome horses. But, he says, this king does not and will not triumph through the force of arms. This kind of entry into the city isn't the first time something like this has happened. This was the practice. The king comes to the city. So some, some triumphant military leader comes into the city and all the people come out and meet him and lead him back into the city in joyful procession, surrounded by people singing songs of praise and exaltation. And then here comes Jesus on a baby donkey. He doesn't even pick the full-grown donkey. He picks the little donkey. It's almost comical. It's very deliberate and a fulfillment of Scripture. He is coming to rule. He is coming to save. But in his earthly ministry, in this moment, he's not doing so by taking earthly power. He's not doing so by killing. He's doing so by laying down his life. By, by in a sense, laying down his power and dying. What's the crowd expecting as they, as they come out to meet Jesus with songs and celebration? As they come into Jerusalem, they are expecting, here is our revolutionary. Here is the one. We're going to overthrow Rome's rule over us. This is our military savior to overthrow the government, to bring judgment down on the Romans, to set us free. And they thought that was their greatest need, but that was not their greatest need. What they really needed was someone to bear their judgment that they deserved. Not to, not to bring judgment down on the Romans, but to bear their judgment. They needed pardon. They needed reconciliation with God. And so, in this triumphal entry, as this king enters into the city, God is not giving them what they want. He's giving them what they need. So for all these reasons and many more, Jesus enters Jerusalem the way that he does. It'll help us to think through what, what happened that led up to Jesus coming into Jerusalem this way. On Friday evening, Jesus had arrived in Bethany at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He had raised Lazarus from the dead not long before this. Everybody was talking about it. He arrived at sundown of the Sabbath, had a meal with them, spent the Sabbath with them. That's sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. On Saturday night, uh, John's gospel tells us that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus held a party. They had a dinner in their home in Jesus' honor. And the next morning then, on Sunday, Jesus and the disciples set out for Jerusalem to make their way into Jerusalem. They left Bethany, and as they got closer to Jerusalem, they're passing this little village of Bethpage, and Jesus says to two of his disciples, "'Go into that village.'" Go right here. You're going to find a donkey tied up with her colt. I want you to bring them back to me. If someone stops them as you're untying them and beginning to lead them away, if the owner says, stop thief, tries to have you arrested, just tell them the Lord said he requires this. They'll be happy to give them to you at that point. I can imagine the disciples, even after everything they've seen from Jesus, still being like, yeah, this sounds a little scary. 
The disciples do what he says. It goes exactly like he says it would go. Mark tells us in his account, Jesus rode on the full, not the full-grown mother, that it had never been bridled. It had never been ridden. This is miraculous in and of itself. An untamed full. Donkeys aren't exactly known for not being stubborn. Immediately becomes tame. As the Lord rides it. As he draws near the city then, more and more people are coming out. Each village they pass, the people are coming and joining in the procession. Coming from this direction, coming from that direction. Pilgrims are making their way to Jerusalem as well. And they are joining in this procession. There's more and more enthusiasm. The, the spiritual temperature is getting higher and higher and higher as more and more people join in the, the crowd and the praises. The multitude begins to, to sing some psalms of ascent, like Psalm 118, or like Psalm 116 that we heard this morning. These, these psalms that you, you, they're called psalms of ascent because when you go to Jerusalem, you always go up to Jerusalem. Doesn't matter what direction you're coming from, you're going up to Jerusalem. And these are the psalms we sing as pilgrims, as we travel to Jerusalem, except they're directing them now at Jesus. It's not like any other time we've, we've sung these psalms as we're coming into the city. Hosanna to the son of David. And they're looking at Jesus and they're going, that's him. John tells us in his account, there's a group of people who had known of Jesus' ministry in Galilee, they had already arrived, but they come out and join this crowd. There were people there who had seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. Many who had heard of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. They're all a part of this crowd worshiping Jesus. And so all of these people are, are converging on Jerusalem. And as they do, enthusiasm is just building and building and building. People start throwing their garments on the ground before Jesus breaking off the branches of the trees and, and waving them, throwing them before him, receiving him like a triumphant, conquering king, calling out to him in messianic praises, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna to the son of David. And as they are entering Jerusalem, the whole city takes notice. Everyone sees, everyone hears what is going on, and they're all coming out to see what is happening. Jesus' earthly ministry is drawing to a close. He is not doing things in secret any longer. He is doing everything out in the open. He is intentionally drawing attention to himself, making his claim of kingship openly known because he wants everyone to see him. He wants everyone to know who he really is. He wants everyone to be paying attention to him so that everyone will see the events that are going to take place over the next few days, which no one but Jesus expects to take place. J.C. Ryle says, before the great sacrifice for the sin of the world was offered up, it was right that every eye should be fixed on the victim. That's what Jesus is doing. He's focusing every eye on himself, focusing every eye on his person, focusing every eye on on his work. Second thing we see as we look into this passage is scripture proving Jesus' claims. 
revealing his person, revealing his work that he's putting on, to, on display. It is fulfilled by Scripture. Verse 4, it took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on a foal of a beast of burden. So not only is Jesus claiming to be king, Scripture confirms it. Scripture is proving Jesus' claims to be true. Scripture is revealing who Jesus is. And we, like these crowds, all have preconceived notions about what Jesus should be like. They had a notion of what this king should be, who this Messiah should be, what he should do and what he should not do. Should do, overthrow the Roman government. Should not do, be executed by the Roman government. Pretty clear. But we have preconceived notions of what Jesus is like. But listen, Jesus defines himself to us. We don't define him. He wants us to know who he really is. And by the way, this is one of the reasons that TV shows like The Chosen are very dangerous for us. I know that's a wildly popular show. I hear it's very well made. The problem is this. Shows like that fill our minds with a false notion of what Jesus is like. The creators of the show even say that. We've created dialogue that never happened. We've created scenarios that never happened. We've taken artistic license in order to make this show. But when we do that, when we subject ourselves to the TV shows, the movies, with portraying Jesus in his life, especially if they're taking artistic license, but I would say any of them, here's what happens to us. We pick up our Bible and we read this passage, and that's the image that's in our mind. That's what's filling our mind. It is a false notion of Jesus. When we sing to him, when we pray, when we read scripture, it is this false man-created Jesus that we picture and that we think of. It's the reason when we think of Jesus, we picture various pictures and paintings of him that we've seen over the years, and that's what's in our mind. We need to be very careful with that. When we meditate on the revelation of Jesus in Scripture, which is enough for us. Our idea of the Savior is changed. We understand him like he wants to be understood. And here in verses 4 and 5, Matthew is telling us that Jesus is fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Zechariah 9, 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. This proves that Jesus is the Messiah, but it also reveals some very unexpected qualities about who Jesus is, about who this Messiah is, things they were not expecting. Behold, it says, your king, your king is coming to you. Jesus is the king, but he is very specifically their king, the people's king. He is your king. He's not some conquering tyrant coming in from the outside to conquer you. He's your king. He comes to the people. He comes for the people in his earthly ministry. 
Even this picture of Jesus riding on the colt of a donkey shows this. He doesn't come on a war horse in his earthly ministry to conquer people. Now, we do read about him coming in a war, on a war horse later on in the New Testament. No, he comes now as, as their king for them, for their benefit, for their good. Notice it says how he comes. He comes humble. We don't expect our king to come humbly. We don't expect our, our conquering ruler, our Messiah, to come humbly. But in this moment, as he enters Jerusalem, as he announces himself as king, he comes in gentleness, he comes in peace, he comes in graciousness, he doesn't come in war, he doesn't come in judgment, not in this moment. Again, later in the New Testament, we're going to hear much about Jesus coming in war, coming in judgment, but in this moment, he comes humbly in gentleness. He comes to bring blessing to them, not to oppress them. He comes to set them free, not enslave them. They are enslaved. They think their greatest enslavement is to the Romans. And he has come because their greatest enslavement is to sin and death. Again, this picture of him coming into town, not on a war horse, but on the colt of a donkey, it just stresses this, this humble, this, this picture of humility, the Lord of glory, the King of the universe, the one who sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, riding into Jerusalem on a baby donkey that he doesn't even own. He had to borrow it from the people. I guess they got it back. We don't know. What a shocking scene. What a shocking thought. As we study Scripture, our preconceptions about Christ are changed. They are shaped according to His Word, according to His revelation of Himself. Have you ever talked to someone, I'm sure you have at some point, who made the statement, well, the God I would worship would never fill in the blank? How does that conversation always go? they're going to finish that sentence with something the Bible says God absolutely would do. That's how that, the God I worship would never, and then they're going to say something biblical. And we're left standing there going, it's funny because here in the Bible it says God absolutely would do that, does do that, is doing that. So the God you worship is obviously not the God of the Bible. There are so many people who do this with Jesus. Jesus would never... And then they just make something up. Whatever their own broken sense of human reason tells them is not an appropriate thing for him to be doing. They have made a Jesus up in their own mind. But God has revealed himself to us in Scripture. He has made himself known. Who he is, what he is like, what he does, what he will never do. The only way we can know what Jesus is like is the Bible. We don't get that from just our gut feeling. I can remember as a young, charismatic preacher who was too young to be preaching and way too dumb to be preaching. I can remember thinking, I'm just going to instinctively know what's true and what's not true. What's true about God? What's true about life? What's good? What's bad? what God is like, what he would do, what he wouldn't. I'm just going to kind of know. Like my gut will tell me that. What insanity. 
What absolute insanity. We don't know God that way. We, God has revealed himself in Scripture. It is the only way we will know him. Some vague sense in our gut that we associate with the Holy Spirit is not a reliable source for what God is like. He has revealed himself to us in his word. It is sufficient. We must mold our thoughts of who he should be, what he should do, how he should act, and we must submit those thoughts to his own definition of who he is and what he does. Finally then, we see it's it's not just about seeing him, it's not just about knowing about him. Jesus' coming demands a response from us. Look at verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks. He sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. The others cut branches from the trees, spread them on the road. The crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet, Jesus, from Nazareth of Galilee. Jesus' coming into the city this way demands a response. He is removing the choice to accept him as just a good teacher, but something less than the king. Something less than God in the flesh. Many of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis's famous trilemma. Because of the things Jesus said about himself, anyone who accepts him as a good teacher but says he is not God is on par with, and Lewis kind of humorously said, on par with an insane person who thinks of themselves as a poached egg or, or, or a, a liar, a, a wicked lunatic, or he's the Lord of glory himself. But it's one of those three options. Jesus is either insane, evil, or he is exactly who he says he is. God in the flesh. And Jesus is removing from them the option to go, we'll take this guy as a good example for, a wonderful moral example for us, but no, not not the king to whom we must bow our knee. Jesus, by entering the city like this, as every eye is on him, is saying to them, you must deal with me. Who do you say that I am? I'm going to force you to take a position on me. He is demanding a response from the people of Jerusalem. He is demanding a response from every person who came after that, of us today, in this moment. He demands a response from us. As Jesus is entering the city, as the crowds begin singing Psalm 118 to him, as they're singing this messianic psalm, one of six psalms, frequently applied to Jesus in the New Testament. He is making it perfectly clear who he is. It is a big deal that they are singing these songs. They recognize what Jesus is saying about himself. And there are three basic responses to Jesus in this crowd. Everyone must respond to him. Everyone will respond to him. The question is, how will we respond? Two of these responses we see directly in this passage. One we can infer from the events that happen only a few days later. Some people were very excited about Jesus. 
They were very excited about him, but their knowledge of him was superficial. We call these the crowds. These are the pilgrims traveling to Jerusalem. They are excited, but they are superficial. We can also call these the megachurch, the, the attractional church. Much excitement, much enthusiasm, and their knowledge of God goes about half an inch deep. That's these crowds. They are superficial, both in their knowledge of him and in their support of him. How do we know that? Because when they asked, who is this? Their answer was, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. They meant that. He's a prophet. But we know that their support of him melted away later this week. Here he is. He's a prophet. Later in the week, let's keep our distance. We don't want anything to do with him. Now, a lot of times, to great effect, these, these passages preach, and they go, this same group of pilgrims traveling into the city with him later shouted out, crucify him. Well, the truth is, no, it probably was not this group of pilgrims traveling into the city who was shouting out, crucify him. There are two different crowds going on. But it's clear that at the moment of his crucifixion, his arrest and crucifixion, Jesus had lost the support of these multitudes. These multitudes that lead him into the city with song and praise and rejoicing. So their knowledge of him was a superficial one. It did not have the power to transform their lives. Again, this is sadly the response of many churches to Jesus today. Next Sunday, throughout this week, we will see advertised the over-the-top gimmicks that churches will be doing just to try to get people to show up on Easter Sunday to church. Because the excitement is superficial, and we've got to constantly generate it. We've got to constantly be working it up. And friends, that does not have staying power. You've always got to top it. You've always got to beat it. What you win them with is what you win them to. And if you win them with helicopters dropping candy, what do you got to do next year? Maybe a tank shooting it at them or something. It's important, though, to learn a lesson for us from all of this. It's not enough to just think positively about Jesus. It's not enough just to have good feelings about him, to, to get goosebumps at certain moments when we sing songs and the chord structure works just right and the band's hitting it just right. No. When we stand before his throne, Jesus is not going to go, did you have positive thoughts about me? The question is, have we embraced him as who he claims to be? As who he has revealed himself to be? The son of God the Savior of sinners. Have we recognized that we are sinners in need of grace and not basically good and spiritual people who just want to feel excited a lot of times? Have we trusted in him alone for our salvation as he has offered in the gospel? Have we bowed our knee before this king in submission and worship to him? What is going to matter on that final day when we stand before the throne of God is not positive thoughts about Jesus. The positive thoughts about Jesus are, I would hope that you think very positively about him. But they will get you nowhere on that final day. That's what we learn from these crowds. And we might go, well, they're better than the Pharisees. 
They're better, than, better to be superficially excited than to be like the Pharisees. I just said, these aren't the same crowds that are shouting crucify him just a few days later. But in the end, if this is all these crowds believe about Jesus, that he's a prophet, that he's potentially a military savior, who's going to bring me what I think I need the most, if that's all they believe, they will find themselves in exactly the same boat with those who mocked him and scourged him and crucified him, who refused to believe in the Lord of glory. They will find themselves in exactly the same place. They are not better off. We must think more than positive thoughts about the Lord Jesus Christ. We must submit to him as Lord. Not just be fond of him as a savior. We must trust in him alone for our salvation as he has offered it in the gospel. And so this is the first response of these crowds, of these pilgrims. It's superficial knowledge, superficial enthusiasm. The second response comes from the people of Jerusalem. Their response is ignorance. What's their question in verse 10? Who is this? All, all the pilgrims as they're traveling, they know exactly who this is. They've heard what he has done. Jesus has been to Jerusalem before, but the people don't know who he is. They're saying, who is this? So there's, there's this ignorance in the people of Jerusalem. Superficiality in the travelers. Many of them, not all of them. Many of them. Ignorance in the people of Jerusalem. What are the other responses to Jesus? Well, we know that there were Pharisees in and among these multitudes. So, although most of this crowd that we see here in this account, most of them are not the ones crying out, crucify him, some of them did. The, the response of these people was devious and deliberate opposition to the Lord Jesus. And again, we're tempted to think, well, that's the only thing that really gets you in trouble. At least, you know, I might not know who God is. I might get it all wrong sometimes, but I've got a level of enthusiasm about it. And I'm sure that's all God cares about. The only thing that really might get me in trouble is deliberate opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's tempting for us to think that, but all three of these responses are wholly inadequate. They earn you nothing before God but hell, but judgment. They are the responses of people who don't know him. They really don't know who he is. Superficial knowledge of Christ that doesn't change anything in your life. Ignorance about Christ, opposition to Christ, all of these bring condemnation. They just leave us in the condemnation we're already in. We must deal with Jesus because make no mistake about it, Jesus is the conquering king. He is coming into Jerusalem humbly on this day, on this Sunday. But that's not always going to be his posture. He is the conquering king. He is, even now, putting his enemies under his feet. Not a single enemy will stand. We must deal 
with Jesus. And indifference to Jesus is defiance. Superficial positivity about Jesus is dangerous. Opposition to Jesus is fruitless and treasonous. We must bow the knee before him. Every knee will bow before him. But this is the fourth response to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the only saving response. We bow the knee. We acknowledge him as king. Not just this vague king out there as our king. To whom we owe allegiance. We acknowledge him as Lord. Again, not just some vague Lord out there as our Lord. We acknowledge him to be savior. He must not just be the savior of the world. He must be our savior. We acknowledge him as the only source of salvation, that in him alone we find salvation. Because although he wasn't coming on in judgment on this Sunday that we read about in Matthew 21, he is going to judge. There will be a day for all of us. And this is the only saving response to the Lord Jesus Christ. So that same question that is is forced upon them has been forced upon you. It was forced upon you before you ever came here. It was forced upon you the very first time you heard the name Jesus. It was forced upon you even in its early stages when you opened your eyes and saw the world around you and knew there was a creator to whom you were accountable. It's all the more forced upon you because you're hearing the gospel preached today. The question is, What will you do with Jesus? What do you think of Jesus? As Jesus said, who do you say that I am? There's only one saving response to that question. And that question is being asked of you today. And maybe you're not a believer. Maybe you've thought you are, but you're more like these crowds. You get excited sometimes about Jesus. You're able to muster it up, but for the most part, there's no real effect on your life. No, nothing would change. If, if you were just to be totally removed from any sort of Christian worship and, and church life, or anything, nothing would really change on a Tuesday afternoon for you. Maybe you're like these crowds. Maybe you haven't really bowed the knee. Maybe maybe you're walking in sin that you refuse to turn from. You will not bow the knee to the king. Maybe you're just walking in ignorance like the people of Jerusalem. You've got to set in your heart that God doesn't actually care if I worship him rightly. He doesn't care if I know who he is. I have no... I have no desire to pick up a Bible and read it. Not, not even, I'm not, talking about, I'm not talking about we pick our Bible up and we're just always overcome with goosebumps and it's always the, the mountaintop greatest experience of our lives. We, we just won't even like, I know that I need this. This is the Word of God. Whether I feel it or not, I must come to God in His Word. I must hear from Him. I must, I must be shaped into the mold of Christ. And not be shaped into the mold of this word. But you have no desire for that at all. 
Maybe that's you. And Christ in his kindness has you here this morning. And he puts before you himself. He's been revealed to you in the word preached. And he says to you, will you have me as king? For many of us, we're Christians. We belong to God. We're seeking to live lives of obedience to him. And Jesus would remind us he is the king. In this dark world, in the tragedies we have seen this week, the shooting that took place on Monday, our brothers and our sisters attacked violently. Children. We have a brother pastor who I trust has stood or is standing in the pulpit this morning whose nine-year-old daughter was likely targeted and murdered. We look at this world and we go, what? how can we make sense of this? How can we have any hope? How can we have any peace? Here is where our peace is found. Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning over all that he has made. The victory has been won. As we come into this holy week, as we approach Friday, the darkness of that day, we don't do so as those who feel bad for a victim. We do so as the people of the risen and reigning King. As the sons and daughters of God the Father Almighty who perfectly accomplished His perfect plans through the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This Jesus who has ascended to the right hand of power, who is seated on His throne, putting His enemies under His feet. And we look at the injustices of the world. We look at the madness of the world. We look at a world where Christians have been targeted and the immediate response of our president and of the media is trans people are being targeted. They're the ones who are in danger. It's completely upside down. It's completely backwards. But instead of feeling despair, we lift our eyes to the risen and ruling the Lord Jesus Christ who did not come in vengeance on that Sunday but whose enemies will not stand before him. Justice belongs to him. And justice will be had. We remind ourselves that this same king is also the savior. He is our savior. He is the one who came to save He's the one who gave his life that we might be saved. He is the one who so loved the world that he came to save. And God the Father Almighty so loved the world that he sent his son to save. And we have been saved by this king. This king who's putting his enemies under his feet. This king who rules in judgment. This king who will return in judgment is our savior is our friend. We're hidden in him such that the world cannot touch us. And he has given us his gospel. He has given us his gospel that we might take it to the world around us. And so even as we cry out to God for justice, 
Even as we call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to, Lord, put your enemies under his feet. Let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Even as we do so, we do so knowing we are ambassadors of the gracious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The justice does not belong to us. The vengeance does not belong to us. But we are called to bring this gospel to all people, calling them to repent calling them to turn from their sins, calling them to bow their knee before the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Lord knows who are his. There is such comfort. There is such comfort in being the people of God. There is such comfort in knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ is the king, as he revealed himself on that day. What will you do with him, Christian? Will you trust him? Will you obey him? Will you keep your hand to the plow in the task that he has assigned to us to take this gospel to the world? Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Lord, we are humbled as we look to Christ our Savior, to Christ our King. As we come into this holy week, Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in us. We pray by your spirit that you would lift our eyes to see Christ. Lord, in a world that is frightening at times, infuriating at times, distracting in the pleasures that it offers at other times, we pray, Lord, by your spirit, you would fix our eyes on your son. It would cause in us faithfulness, that it would cause in us courage, that it would cause in us hope and joy, that it would cause in us a holy boldness to proclaim the truth. Yes, to speak it in love, to speak it in humility, to speak it with grace, but to boldly stand when the world would come against us. Pray, Lord, that you would do these things in us by your spirit, for your glory, for your kingdom's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.